Hello and welcome to The Intersection. My name is Mark Riley. Glad you're with us. In this episode, the fires in Hawaii are America's latest climate tragedy. Did Maui's utility do enough to contain them? A while back, I screened the gripping documentary, All the Beauty in the Bloodshed. It's about artist and photographer Nan Golden's fight against the Sackler family, makers of, among other drugs, OxyContin. The family eventually settled lawsuits for $6 billion, but now the Supreme Court has stepped in and said, not so fast. A GOP presidential hopeful wants to raise the voting age to 25. Young and can't afford the rent? You're not alone. And a friend sent me an email about abortion I just have to share with you. Are you ready then? The death toll in the Maui wildfires is creeping toward 100 and may have reached that tragic milestone by the time you hear this. While climate change hasn't been directly linked to the fires, meteorologists say it was a combination of dry conditions on Maui, low humidity, and trade winds from Hurricane Dora hundreds of miles south in the Pacific Ocean. Whatever the cause, many folks on Maui and in the state of Hawaii are questioning the government's response. They're asking why there was so little advance warning and why the state's largest power company didn't shut off the power when the winds became dangerously high. Other states, including California, have adopted what's called a public power shutoff plan. Maui Electric didn't. Over the weekend, several law firms sued Maui Electric's parent company, alleging that the downed power lines caused the fire and that company officials, quote, inexcusably kept their power lines energized despite fire warnings. Fire warnings, by the way, that had gone back a couple days before they actually started. Another issue that's coming up is the response by politicians. When no one takes into account their time-tested ability to deflect blame, or actually when you do take that into account, the political response is just as expected. My first question was, when is Joe Biden going to Maui to show some presidential empathy? Haven't heard anything yet. Maybe we will by the end of the week. You never know. One would hope, though, that it's coming soon. Even if he can't make the trip to Hawaii, and I don't know why uh, there's some earthly reason why he couldn't, he ought to be seeing to it that all possible aid is going directly to affected residents. They're the ones who in many cases have lost everything and are wondering when help from the government will be coming. To their credit, residents aren't waiting on the government. They've organized ad hoc networks of volunteers who are doing what they can to help those devastated by the wildfires. That, by the way, is precisely what Americans do. And I'll get to that a little bit later on in another story. Just when I thought the U.S. Supreme Court was utterly hopeless, they surprised me. They've pressed pause on a $6 billion settlement made to thousands of people who sued the Sackler family. And it wasn't just people, it was municipalities, it was indigenous tribes out in the Midwest of the United States. People from all over America sued the Sacklers. They once controlled Purdue Pharma, makers of several lines of opioids, including OxyContin. They were largely responsible for the epidemic that killed thousands of people by way of drug overdoses. 
Purdue Pharma and the Sacklers sought to shield themselves from the thousands, that is, of civil lawsuits by settling for a one-shot payment of $6 billion. Now, even though that sum sounds like a great deal of money, believe me, they can afford it. Their last net worth was like $11 billion. The plaintiffs represent governments, indigenous tribes, hard hit by opioids, and individuals whose lives and those of their loved ones were damaged by addiction. I became aware of the Sackler saga by way of a documentary on the life and work of renowned photographer and artist Nan Golden. It's called All the Beauty and the Bloodshed. Golden waged war on the Sacklers, convincing several museums and art galleries worldwide to stop taking money from the family, because that's one of the things they do on a pretty regular basis, at least they used to do on a regular basis, was to donate to various art galleries and museums all over the world, including the Louvre and a bunch of the Tate in England, all over the place. This was a tall order because the Sacklers did, in fact, fund substantial art projects across the globe. As we all know, money is a powerful incentive for good and for evil. Thanks to the work of Nan Golden and others who worked with her, the Sacklers have become pariahs in the art world. The high court paused but did not end and did not throw out the bankruptcy deal. They'll be hearing from both sides, one of which is the Justice Department. For my money, whatever final deal gets the plaintiffs their money quickly is the one I support. Sadly, that could be the one that shields the Sackler family from liability for what they did to thousands of American families. And if you haven't had a chance to see uh, the uh, documentary about Nan Golden, I, you know, at first, when you see it, you think, well, she was the one that did it. It's not done by her. And by the way, it was Oscar nominated. It's about her. It's called All the Beauty and the Bloodshed. And Nan Golden had an extraordinary career and then became addicted to opioids when she was getting taking painkillers for a wrist injury. And she waged this one-woman crusade. And one of the things I came, took from this documentary is that one person, obviously she didn't do it all by herself, but one person can in fact make a difference if they're willing, if they're willing to engage in civil disobedience, if they're willing to be disruptive. And I think there's a message in that for people and for organizations for that matter, all over the world. Up next, quick question, who's the guy running for president who wants to raise the nation's voting age to 25 and why does he want to do it? Stick around. This is The Intersection. Wherever you are, you're here with Mark Riley. It's the voice that you know and the information you can trust. Welcome back to The Intersection. Vivek Ramaswamy is running for the Republican presidential nomination. His CV is straight out of the Donald Trump, Ron DeSantis School of Republican Politics. He's anti-woke. He contends Juneteenth is useless, says action against climate change is the work of a cult. You get the picture. But unlike his fellow travelers, Ramaswamy has one different area of advocacy. 
He wants to change the Constitution of the United States so the voting age is raised from 18 to 25. 18 to 25-year-olds would be allowed to vote if they either passed a civics test, as immigrants are required to do, or served six months in the military or as a first responder. He calls this blatant disenfranchisement a perfectly reasonable condition of having the ability to vote. It's a test that harkens back to a time when black people had to jump through hoops and pass impossible tests in order to vote. In fact, many hurdles, like literacy tests, worked against the rights of white people without sufficient education. That Vivek Ramaswamy knows so little about American history that he would advocate for such a thing speaks volumes about his fitness for the presidency. It also should be noted that his proposal wouldn't necessarily achieve his goal of fostering civic pride, but would go a long way toward dealing with the recent history of young people voting against his party. That's right, they vote Democratic. And if you lop a whole bunch of them off the voter rolls, guess what? Republicans got a better shot at controlling, for example, the presidency. If this is the best way to encourage pride in America, what does it say about America? And what does it say about the person who proposes this nonsense? If he really wants a lesson in civic pride, seriously, he need look no further than the people of Maui, who have come together during a natural disaster to help each other any way they can. He might want to ask how those good people came across their civic pride might learn something. Here's a stat that might give you pause. From night, and it's not from me, it's from Moody's Analytics. From 1999 to last year, incomes have risen by 77%. Sounds like a lot, right? Yet rents during that same period have risen 135%. That means According to a New York Times article that quotes those Moody, Moody's analytics, a large number of what are called Generation Zers, including, for example, my own daughter, are spending inordinate amounts of money on rent. And when it comes to affording a house, forget about it. When I was young, the rule of thumb was you spent 25% of your income on rent. In other words, four weeks in a month, one week would go to your rent. Now, if the Times piece is to be believed, and I have no reason to disbelieve it, people in their 20s are spending anywhere from 50 to 85% of their pay on rent. More and more Generation Zers are opting to live either with their parents or with roommates as a result. And this is not just in expensive places to live like New York City or San Francisco. I mean, uh, there was a time when I was crossing over into my early 30s that the ceiling went from 25 to about 30%. And that's where it is supposed to be to this day. But from Maine to Reno, the American dream of owning a home is increasingly out of reach for our children and grandchildren. And leaving that aside, if they can't buy a home, the rents that they have to pay, you could make the argument that they're somewhat extortionate 
But, you know, th that is the hand that these young people have been dealt. And a lot of times, people of my generation don't always pay attention to the hands that we deal our children and grandchildren. Just look at the fight over climate change. What can be done about all this? I, for one, am not sure if there's any fair way to bring down housing costs. You can talk about greedy landlords all you want, but unless Americans are ready to live under a system other than capitalism, Property owners, with few exceptions, can charge whatever the market will bear. It's entirely possible that the solution to this problem will come not from somebody my age, but from a Gen Zer, him or herself. And finally, some wisdom on abortion, courtesy of an old friend. This is The Intersection. You're listening to Mark Riley. It's the only podcast where the world makes sense. Welcome back to The Intersection. The following comes to my inbox, originally from Jeffrey St. Clair, by way of Leslie Kahn, and finally from my good friend Richard Kearney. Rich is an educator, a family man, and a progressive thinker of the first order. Here's the gist. And by the way, he passes it on to me, and I'm passing it on to you, which is, for me, probably the only good thing about social media. We can pass progressive ideas around just as easily as we can press, you know, pass around you know, nonsense from influencers and that sort of thing. Now, in 2020, the state of Kansas went for Donald Trump by a 14% margin. Two years later, last year, an abortion referendum whose premise was to amend the state's constitution such that there would be no right to abortion in the state, and that initiative was defeated by an 18% margin, a net swing of 32%. In Ohio, Donald Trump won by 8% in 2020. A set of changes to the state's constitution would have upped the threshold to enact changes in that same constitution from a simple majority to 60%. Why would Republicans want to get behind this? Because they figure it would be more difficult to marshal the numbers to pass a constitutional amendment that would enshrine a woman's right to choose. That one, by the way, failed this year by a 60 to 40% margin or 20%. That's a net swing of 28% for the progressive side of the aisle. The question being asked is simple. Why don't Democrats nationwide push initiatives that would codify a woman's right to choose into state constitutions across the country? Sure. It may be tough to change the U.S. Constitution, but you see, even red states could be willing to guarantee this right if national Democrats, and I don't want to say what I was getting ready to say there, but if they got behind it. Is there really an electoral downside to this? I, you know, sometimes Democrats can be cautious to a fault, and in this case, 
there's no groundswell of democratic activity to try and get this done. Certainly not on the national level. And is there an electoral downside or just, are Democrats just too timid to take the necessary steps? I would sincerely hope that the party that purports to be a home for progressives can stand up for a majority of its constituents and take the lesson from Kansas and from Ohio and run with it all the way to the ballot box. And I'm going to tell you something else. Joe Biden, quiet as it's kept, is running for re-election. I think he ought to be, just like he ought to be over in Maui about now, he ought to be taking the lead on this and saying to different states across the country, why don't you put this into your constitution? You know, because that's what the Supreme Court essentially did was take away a woman's right to choose via Roe v. Wade. So that essentially is supposed to throw it back to the states where I think the conservative majority on the court figured more states than not would not allow this to happen. Well, Democrats have the ability to make it happen. But you know, you have to, in order to do that, you have to believe in yourself. You have to believe that you have the ability. You have to believe that there isn't the electoral downside that some strategists and consultants and other people that talk to the Democrats, who have the Democrats' ears, sometimes posit. Ohio, Kansas, neither one of them are New York City, neither one of them are San Francisco, neither one of them are the liberal bastions that conservatives love to rail about. I think it's time for the Democrats to get up and fight for something. And why not this? Because I think it's an electoral winner. Thanks so much for listening to The Intersection. The executive producer is Kim Jack Riley, and music is by Tevin Thomas. Until next time, please be well.